So just stop and think for a moment, if you would. Think back. Uh, if you were alive back then, I know not all of you were. But if you were alive back then, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had been murdered? Remember that moment? I was in bed. I was 10 years old on December 8th, 1980. And actually, I didn't know about it that night. My parents didn't wake me up. But the next day on this um, this weird new thing called uh, SportsCenter and ESPN on cable, I remember hearing a voice from Howard Cosell that I'd never heard before, which was grief and humility. Because the night before, on the Monday Night Football broadcast on December 8th, I think it was the Patriots-Dolphins, um, Cosell interrupted and said... This is just a football game, but I have incredibly, horribly sad news to share with you. John Lennon has been murdered. I think it was like 11, 10 or so at night. And within a month, I remember I got the first album, first record album I was ever proud of. My dad got me a copy of Double Fantasy. Um, I say the first one I was ever proud of because I had far outstripped my copy of uh, Paradise Theater by Styx. <laughs> or... Uh, or even, uh, what else is in there? ACDC's Back in Black. And there may have been another um, K-Tel album in there that we're just not going to talk about at all. <laughs> but Double Fantasy was the first one that really got me. I, one, I liked it. But also, two, it connected me with this memory of this man whose death I know had affected so many. And I didn't know exactly why it affected them yet. I would, in time, come to learn why. But I knew that I wanted it to affect me, too. And Double Fantasy was a way of me connecting with his memory. Preaching on John Lennon is not easy. The material that I left out of this message that you're going to hear could have filled three more messages. I am conflicted about John Lennon. There's few artists, there are fewer artists, that, that, whose music I love you know, any more than John Lennon. He was just incredible and one of a kind and he also could be an awful, awful jerk. And so we're going to explore both today. For me, John, the meaning of John, is that he was the atomic beetle. He was powerful. He cast out light and heat and tremendous energy. But if he wasn't handled right, he was entirely unstable and entirely too volatile. From the start, he was the beetle with the edge. He was the smart one. Even just take a look or take a listen to uh, Please Please Me. It was the second, one, second uh, Beatles song they released in Brit, Great Britain. It was the first one here in the States that charted. A simple love song, right? No. Uh, I don't know if you know what it's about. I'm not going to tell you from this pulpit. Uh, go back and read the lyrics. But I, I will say this. Um, I'll, I'll try and say it delicately. It is not his hand that John would like held that he's singing about in that song. John had a fierce, very quick intelligence, very witty, and also, at times, incredibly brutal. He had a fragile ego that at times exploded onto and around other people. Probably the most horrifying song that I have ever heard, in rock music at least, was written by John Lennon. Any of you remember the Rubber Soul album? The last cut on there, Run For Your Life. It is worse, unqualifiedly worse than any gangster rap artist I've ever heard. 
in terms of his misogyny, in terms of its sexism. Mick Jagger got a justifiable rep as a sexist for writing Under My Thumb, Run For Your Life by John Lennon, is so much worse than Under My Thumb, they're not even comparable. Few of the lyrics. I'd rather see you dead little girl than to be with another man. You better keep your head little girl or you won't know where I am. It is horrifying. And it's inexcusable. And whether you want to forgive John Lennon for writing this atrocity of a song, that is your decision. And the fascinating thing about John Lennon is that within one decade of writing this monstrosity of a song, he wrote the most outrageous, the most direct, the most provocative, pro-feminist anthem that a man has ever written. And I won't tell you the full title of the song because as a white guy, I'm not going to say this word. But the name of it, if you remember, is Woman is the N-Word of the World. That was his way of saying that the subjugation of women was a universal evil. These two things, these two songs held together, they are part of the contrast and the extremity of John Lennon. The extremity of his viewpoints, the extremity of his emotions. John, for many people, was the first true spiritual seeker they may have ever met. In fact, John's spiritual seeking may have given them or some of you permission to do your own spiritual seeking. He openly talked about the benefits of meditation, went and studied, as we heard about in this song, went and studied from the Hindu scriptures, from the Vedics, from the Vedic sources. He had dalliances with hardcore anti anti Religious atheism, he had little dalliances with a sort of kind humanism. At times in the 1970s, he thought about giving himself to Jesus. He was a spiritual seeker. He had a heart that almost seemed spiritually as if it could be contained in no tradition. Even beyond that, John Lennon led so many people into the ideals and also the problems of his age. He openly talked about his drug experimentation and suffered from drug abuse. He participated in the sexual revolution, political revolutions, the confirmed terms for justice at home and abroad. Without John Lennon, there may have never been any such thing as psychedelia or the summer of love. And perhaps none of us would ever have heard of or ever practice ourselves something called primal scream therapy. In John's case, he didn't just embody many of these trends. He actually led these trends into greater societal knowledge and acceptance. More than any other Beatle, John Lennon was the Beatle who was aware that his own life was an archetype. Sometimes he celebrated this fact. He lifted it up egocentrically. He lifted his own life up. He lifted the band up mythologically. And sometimes he suffered under the weight of his expectations of himself and other people's expectations of what the Beatles were to do. Sometimes he just wanted to say, we're just a rock band, people. We're just a rock band. Stop expecting things out of us. John at base was an idealist, and idealists are supposed to make us uncomfortable by giving us hope. (laughs) Idealists open up that space between what is and pointing to that place of saying, this may be. We may be able to get there together. Life can be transformed. Idealists exist to push our boundaries and press our buttons and to open us up in terms of what is possible. 
The idealist also thinks categorically, and here I want to introduce you to a, a definition of idealism that you may not be familiar with, but maybe you are, and sort of the philosophical understandings of idealism, which has very little to do with just asp- aspiring to something new, aspiring to greater justice, greater hope, greater peace. Idealism is really about the power of ideas, that the nature of reality in and of itself, at its heart, is an idea. Love is all you need. He's not writing about the experience of love. He's saying love is all you need. He's giving it to you as a concept which he's expecting you to apply. He does this even more in one of my favorite Lennon songs, which, God, I sang to myself for years, probably all the years up until uh, my marriage. Not my first marriage, this marriage, the successful marriage that I'm having. Um, I'm a loser. One of... Is that right? You're going to back me up on that one? Success? Okay, good. <laughs> I'm a loser. Now, it's not just in that song that John says, I got my heart broken, it sucks, it's painful, etc. You know, traditional pop song, rock music kind of stuff. No, he says, I'm a loser. Not just I have lost a love, I am a loser. That's a categorical statement about an idea. It wasn't enough for him just to say, I have heartbreak. It is that this goes all the way down to the very core of me and categorically, totally, all-encompassingly, I'm a loser. Now, in fact, that is an incredibly unhealthy thing to do. We know that that's one of the hallmarks of people who struggle with anxiety and depression. They take that huge leap from actually experiencing a feeling, I feel sad, to life is sad. I am in pain, to life is pain. I am depressed right now, to I will always be depressed. That's the problem with ideas and idealism. That's their shadow side. It's that they can go from being a representation of reality to a complete abstraction of reality. An attachment that we hold to an idea and say, this is all that ever was and this is all that ever could be. This past week I got an email. Um, I subscribe to a lot of different sort of email filters and RSS and most of them tend to be sort of um, from progressive religious communities like Wellsprings. But I also want to understand what people in different religious traditions are talking about. And so I got one of the ones I think it was from Christianity Today, which is a very fine magazine. I disagree with it very, very often, but it's it's really quite fine in a lot of ways. Well, they had something sent out by one of their sponsors and it said this, that as some of you might know that currently there is a bit of a kerfuffle going on between the administration in Washington and the um, uh, is, is Israel's administration on this uh, idea of settlements. And actually, I'm really proud that we're trying to push back on this idea of settlements. I grew up Jewish. I believe in the state of Israel. But it doesn't mean, from my perspective, that everything the Israeli government does has carte blanche. It does not, from my perspective. Well, this email said, Israel needs your support. Notice they didn't say Israelis need your support. Israel, a category, an idea, a whole concept somehow just pointed to by one word. The irony is that so much of the Jewish tradition actually warns us against the dangers of idolatry, of making one idea stand for everything. The second commandments, the Ten Commandments, could be read simply as sort of divine jealousy. Don't worship those gods, worship me. And in a way, sometimes that's been interpreted that way. But I think there's a deeper psychological truth there. When it talks about do not make idols, I think they're also talking about the truth of what the Buddhist tradition understood in one of its most curious, most famous sayings, which is that if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. 
You all know that? If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. The point of that teaching is that the Buddha you will have conjured is a Buddha of your own idolatry, the Buddha of your own projection, and you, we, hopefully all of us, can move past and transcend the limitations of our ideas that we attach to into deeper life. Lenin celebrated, but unfortunately he understood all too well the dangers of idolatry. I mean, this was a guy who literally, backstage at Beatles concerts, sometimes when people saw him walking on the street, even into the 1970s, when he was living in New York, he had parents of disabled children ask him, please place your hand upon my child and they will be healed. And this is like Messiah-level stuff that people are asking John Lennon to take care of. He understood the dangers of idolatry. This is actually what he meant. He didn't mean it as praising. He just said that as a fact. He got in so much trouble for doing it, but he said the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. He was talking about the dangers of idolatry. He was talking about a rock group being elevated to absolutely iconic religious status. And indeed, idolatry equals not just spiritual death because it closes us down to the capacity for deeper faith in that creative spirit in the universe that is always animating, always growing, always changing, never stayed, never fixed, always here and always out in front of us. It's not just that idolatry equals spiritual death. Idolatry equals real death. Mark David Chapman, the man who murdered John Lennon, in one of his parole hearings, 20 years after, of course, the parole was denied, he said, for me, John Lennon, when I killed him, was a face on an album cover. I did not know and I did not accept the reality of John Lennon. Now, whether he was saying that to try and get out of jail, I have no idea. But the point is that when we make something an idol, when we engage in idolatry, we dehumanize our ideas and we can dehumanize each other. It's one of the reasons that the shadow side, the tough side of being an idealist, is impatience. It's kind of like a child finding what they think is the perfect toy for a moment. Mine. <laughs> I want it all. But then the moment the toy breaks or doesn't prove to be, you know, fulfilling of the promise of the fun that they thought they would have had, they discard it. The problem is not that most of the things that John Lennon believed in weren't worthy or good or worthy of aspiring to. Many of them were. They were ideas and ideals worth having. The problem was that although John could articulate them with a rare poetry, especially, especially I think Dylan is probably his only peer in this way as a, as a songwriter, as well as he could articulate them with his music, he practiced them so, so poorly. It's almost as if when he came upon a new idea, he said, this is the best thing in the world. Until the next new idea came along, he said, that's the best thing in the world. He had such enthusiasm, but so little patience. That's the problem with the immature idealist. Even around the good things, we can have tremendous arrogance. One of my favorite Beatles songs is from Rubber Soul. It's called The Word. It's the Word is Love is the full title, if you, if you know it. Now, John, 25 years old, he's starting to develop his you know, spiritual awareness, seemingly. He says, now that I know what I feel must be right, I've come to show everybody the light. Say the word and be like me. That's what he says. Congratulations, John Lennon. You're 25 years old. You have figured out the mysteries of existence. We want to be exactly like you. The amount of arrogance is just completely galling, even, even up to the point the song we sang, which I love. All you need is love. So much easier to preach than it is to practice. Because the man who sang this song was on the cusp 
of divorcing and abandoning his wife and his child, Julian. And he wouldn't see his child, Julian, for five years. All you need is love. How about just try a little tenderness, John? How about that to start with? That's the problem with the immature idealist. John's political pronouncements were so often arrogant and naive and just foolish. I mean, his, I don't know how many of you did this for your honeymoon, that you had a bid in for peace that you invited, you know, the local press to come to. If you did, talk to me afterward. Well, it's an interesting story, I'm sure. Well, they had the 10 days in Toronto with he and, uh, he and Yoko, and they were asked at one point a really serious question, which is that, you know, you say you believe in peace, you say you believe in the practice of peace, um, but, you know, what do you do with, with that pacifism in the wake of someone like Hitler, who is not open to reason, who is not open to dialogue? And Yoko Ono, with John's nodding approval, gave one of the most asinine answers I ever heard. She said, if I were a Jewish girl back then, I would become Hitler's girlfriend, and we'd spend ten days in bed together, and it all would have been taken care of. It is offensive and silly and also just wrong. Kind of arrogance there. When John returned his member of the British Empire order, you know, that all the Beatles got sort of close to knighthood from the late 60s, at first it seemed he was making a principled stand. He was opposing it because, and returning it, because he opposed the colonial legacy of Great Britain in Africa and the wars that got them involved in on the side of people who oppressed other people. He said that he could no longer support and be a part of the British Empire when it was supporting our foray into Vietnam. And then as a kicker, he said, this is the final reason. It's that my song, Cold Turkey, was stalling out no longer in the top 40. He just sort of undercut his ideals with his desire to be, you know, a smartass. His desire to make the world conform to what he wanted it to be. So much ego in his idealism. Now, at the same time, John also knew the weights of this idealism. And the shadow side of his own ego. That's part of genius is the ability to hold several, not just two, completely contradictory ways of being in your being at the same time and somehow live. My favorite John Lennon recording actually wasn't made with the Beatles. It's the first album that he made after the Beatles broke up. It's John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, if any of you know that recording. It's my absolute favorite. And it is a man who has come to realize all the shadow side of living in the light of his self-proclaimed and others proclaimed idolatry. Sometimes he blames others more than himself, but I think he's getting closer to the root of the problem in it. A song like Working Class Hero, completely ironic, rather embittered. What he's doing is talking about the hollowness of having to inhabit someone else's symbol. Now, also at this time, this is just after John had gone through primal scream therapy, he actually was coming to a point of starting to recognize that maybe one of the reasons he was so screwed up and so angry with the world and so embittered and at times violent towards other people was that he himself was deeply broken. For those of you who might know, John Lennon had a very difficult, difficult relationship with both his parents. At the age of five, his dad, who was sort of a merchant marine, came back to town and said, John, I'm going to take you to New Zealand. And he took him down to the dock, and John's mother went running after them. And they set John between the two of them, five-year-old little John Lennon, and say, choose. Choose. He chose his father twice. His mother walked away. He started crying, following her. This kind of stuff tends to screw a person up a little bit. It showed with John. John eventually reconciled with his mother, although she really didn't raise him. He was raised by his aunt Mimi. 
But as they were reconciling through their teen years, they started to get closer. And he, she actually, his biological mother, encouraged his music career unlike anyone else. Now, unfortunately, just at the time in which they seemed to be reconciling their relationship, he was visiting her at her home in Liverpool. And she left the gathering one day where they were, and she walked down into the street, and she was struck by an off-duty drunken British cop, and she was killed. And in Plastic Ono Band, we can hear John Lennon probably for the first time coming to understand what that depth of pain and that depth of sorrow is all about, what regret feels like, what anger really feels like when we strip below the anger and we find there an unhealed grief. It's a beautiful song, not an easy song, but a beautiful song called Mother, very simply right at the start of the album. And it moves from very formal, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. And then the second one, Father, you left me, but I never left you. And then he moves to the end, last two and a half minutes of the song, to much more intimate emotional terrain, from Mother and Father to Mama and Daddy. And he repeats over and over again, Mama, don't go. Daddy, come home. Mama, don't go. Daddy, come home. He's finding his inner wounded child. And I remember actually after my mom died, under not entirely the same circumstances, but almost the same time that John Lennon's mom had died, I remember when I didn't know how to handle my grief at all, I would put on this album and I would cry because it was the only time that I would give myself permission to cry. And I would, I mean, just weep and wail. John is starting at this point in his life to recognize that there has to be a deeper life than the symbol, a deeper life than the idol. And so probably my favorite, most difficult John Lennon song called God. He starts it out, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. He goes through this catalog of all these ideas and idols and icons and ideals that he has woven through, moved through, and discarded. I'll just read them off for you. It's actually one of the best, best vocals I've ever heard in all of rock and roll. I don't believe in magic. I don't believe in I Ching. I don't believe in Bible. I don't believe in Tarot. I don't believe in Hitler. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Kennedy. I don't believe in Buddha. I don't believe in Mantra. I don't believe in Gita. I don't believe in Yoga. I don't believe in Kings. I don't believe in Elvis. I don't believe in Zimmerman. That's Bob Dylan's real name. I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. Yoko and me. And that's reality. Now, the problem with swinging so hugely away from any ideals or any ideas is that the self gets to a vanishing point. To the point where only he was real and only Yoko was real. And again, he undercuts his point in a very immature way by including Hitler. <laughs> Pretty much everything else in that list can be authentically life-giving and is not inherently destructive. But he's sort of saying, all ideals are the same and I'm done with all of them. I'm done with all of you. I'm going to find the place where there's the only real life there is, which is only inside of me. His catalog doesn't analyze the fact that there are different kinds of aspirations. And to be a true idealist, we have to make distinctions between those aspirations that help us heal and grow us and those that crush us. There is a world of spiritual difference, and we know this, but only one word of difference but it makes all the difference between someone who is self-centered and someone who is centered. Unfortunately, 
John Lennon never quite got that difference. As much as I love him as an artist, he never quite got that difference. He may have, towards the end of his life, I think you can hear some of that in double fantasy of a man finally at peace with himself and finally authentically able to hold ideals and hold loves that are true. Maybe he was starting to recognize what it is and how it is that an idealist becomes truly mature. How an idealist comes from being a hypocrite or merely becoming a carbon copy of that which they oppose. I saw a study maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago. And sorry if this applies to you or any of your cars. I'm not singling you out. I'm just, you know, don't kill the messenger, just sharing the message. Um, that there was a study, that there was a correlation between the number of bumper stickers that one has on the back of your car and the aggressiveness level of one's driving. <laughs> the actual study that was done, that people who have more bumper stickers on the back of their car tend to drive more aggressively. And I think that gets to the exact reason and the exact difference between an immature idealist and a mature idealist. The immature idealist wants to project it all out there. The change is all out there, far from me. The mature idealist knows that they have skin in the game and that the most profound change that we can affect to affect change in the world is the change inside of our own hearts. The mature idealist knows what it is to be truly humble and truly patient. The mature idealist knows the truth of those words from Gandhi that some of you have heard that we must be the change that we hope to see. That is what the mature idealist lives out, not just thinks about, but lives out with their hearts and their hands. The mature idealist listens to those first moments when the ideals and the ideals that they hold prove to be imperfect, as everything proves to be imperfect. And instead of saying the idea, I'm just going to throw it all out, actually listens and says and asks, how could I experience this dream, this ideal in a deeper more honest way. They listened to what one of the other great 1960s dreamers, the Reverend Sloan Coffin, said. He had a lot of young people who would come into his office when he was a university chaplain, when he was at the Riverside Church in New York City, deeply disillusioned over the state of the world. And he said with kindness, but also directness to many of them, the only reason that you are disillusioned is because you had illusions in the first place. That's what the mature idealists can do. Go beyond the illusion and into the true idea or ideal that animates it. And not say simply or patly or bitterly, as John does and sings at the end of God, the dream is over. True dreamers know that the power that animates dreams does not originate with themselves. Gandhi knew this. He called his power upon which he based his life. The language translates into soul power. He called it Satyagraha. Soul power. That's what animated his life. It was a part of him, but he did not own it. He could rely upon it without exhausting it. In our Unitarian Universalist tradition, many 19th century ministers talked about what they called self-culture. Now, at first, that sounds like selfishness. Like, you know, we're the only one growing in here, and our job is only to grow ourselves. 
It's actually much more like a garden and how a true garden grows. There are many things growing in that garden, and we are just one plant, one thing in seed that is coming to flourish. I have a quote that's on my kitchen, on my refrigerator, so I see it every day, and it reminds me to get out of my own head. It's Van Gogh, who we know lives also a life of a truly tortured artist, who said, we are not here for ourselves alone. We are not here for ourselves alone. The mature idealist knows this. And they finally know what Gandhi also said, one of my favorite stories. He said, I have three enemies. The first is the British Empire. I know that I'm going to oppose them. I know they're going to oppose me. Hopefully I'm going to make some progress there. And he did. The second enemy I have, the Indian people. I'm of them. They're of me. I'm a little closer to them. I struggle with them more. But he said, my third enemy over them, I have no control. This man, Mohandas K. Gandhi. (laughs) This man changed the lives of millions based not on his own power, but a deeper, higher, more wonderful power. He was only able to do that because he was humble in the first place. We don't know exactly. I don't know exactly whether John grew into that place of a more humble, more integrated idealist. He took that drug, fame, which is a very addictive substance, very, very early. And as you know, the earlier one takes a drug, it arrests your development at that stage even sooner. Especially for those people who get hooked early, it is so difficult to make progress. And it takes especially that capacity to listen to disillusionment and to listen to sorrow and pain. It might seem that I've judged John harshly, which is odd because I listen to him probably more than I listen to anyone. So it probably means in a deeper way I'm judging myself also harshly. And I like to remember that John was only three months older than me when he was killed. I like to think of myself still, hopefully, as a young man. <laughs> hopefully. So... If he wouldn't have been murdered, perhaps all this work of integrating, all this work of genius becoming whole, all this work through which and by which hopefully all of us are aspiring to do as well, it could have been his as well. Sometimes it's the thing with many great artists that they can write words that they cannot live. The song that we're about to hear is help. And so John knew that he needed some help. <laughs> the most mature of us know how to ask. And finally, I want to leave you with those words that formed actually the full basis, almost the entirety of my Christmas Eve message this past year. It is for me the best expression the fullest expression of my experience of the love of God that goes beyond anything a theologian will ever teach me. Limitless, undying love that shines around me like a million suns. It calls me on and on across the universe. I can only hope that in John's time of dying, in that transition into the great unknown, great love, that that love that called him on and on would have been there with him. I can't say for sure, 
What I do know is that he left us these words. And that hopefully this limitless undying love, no matter how imperfect the messenger was who shared it, he was the channel to a greater life. Not as an idol, but as a mere vessel. Wonderful vessel. As I think all of us would hope to be. Amen. May may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of life, God of our hearts, may we have birthed within us not an idea of life, but the experience of life. Not the idea of love, but love's true reality. Not an idea of growth spiritually, but the reality of our minds, our hearts, our hands, expanding and living beyond fear. Beyond those boundaries that separate ourselves within ourselves, between ourselves, and that alienate us from this life. May we have within us not the idea of the most noble things, but the experience. Having this experience, may we know that we are invited to grow, invited to grow in a way in which we can never say we have all of the experience, but we can share it. Share it especially in those moments when we struggle with our ideals and aspirations that we might find there, even in a seeming moment of defeat, the deeper seeds of new life beginning and burgeoning within us once again. Amen.